Before we start this episode, we have a quick message from our sponsors. If you're studying for the Foreign Service Officer Test like us, we have a great study tool for you. Besides listening to our podcast, we also use FSO Compass. On FSO Compass, you can find practice tests for every section, comprehensive courses that guide you through the entire application process, and you can even connect with other aspiring U.S. diplomats. The resources have really helped us prepare, and we hope they help you too. To access FSO Compass and get 10% off your annual subscription, be sure to use the link in our description box. Good luck! Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of How Did We Not Know That? I'm Nat. I'm Jack. And Jack, do you want to tell the listeners what will you be covering today? Yes. Well, firstly, I want to thank our newest patrons because we haven't been able to do this for a while. We haven't done a shout out. Yeah, we haven't done shout outs. Our newest patron, Caitlin. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. Caitlin is my personal friend real quick. So shout out to her. Also your sister, (laughs) Jenny. Yes, my sister, Jenny, which actually on the day that we are recording, it is her birthday. So happy birthday to my sister, Jenny. (laughs) Thank you for giving (laughs) supporting us by giving us money but yeah (laughs) yes thank you and happy birthday if you guys have topics you want us to cover again let us know we're happy to cover them yeah okay so now going into what I'm talking about today so I personally have not covered anything in the western hemisphere outside of the United States Nat does a good job on covering different countries on this side but I haven't so I wanted to choose something in Latin America, Central America, South America, somewhere in that region that I didn't know anything about. And I have a lot of incompetencies around the drug trafficking issues in Latin Mm. America. So that's what we're going to cover today. Spicy topic. (laughs) I'm excited. Mm -hmm. This one's going to be interesting. A listener of ours, shout out to Andrew, recommended that we start including questions in order to help us study for the Foreign Service Officer test. If you're not studying for it, don't worry, then this is just good trivia practice. But before we start this episode, I'm going to pose a question and then we'll answer it throughout the episode and then also give you the clear answer at the end. Our question for this episode is, which country is the largest importer of illegal drugs? Ooh, it's a good question. Keep that question in mind. Let's get into the episode. The history of drug trafficking in Latin America really reveals how ongoing and complex these challenges are. It also reveals the way our efforts to suppress the drug trade in one country result in a shift in production and distribution to another country. So it's been ongoing, it's very complex, not that easy to solve, and deserves a lot more attention than just flashy media articles. Nice. In the late 1800s, drugs such as opium had already been present and used in the United States. So the first bits of opium came from the Dutch East India Company. However, Mexico was also able to produce their own opium poppy plant. Mexico is also able to produce marijuana, so... To take advantage of the business opportunity, they quickly start to control the trade of opium and marijuana into the United States. 
Meanwhile, in Peru and Bolivia, there's a special plant that grows in the Andean highlands called the coca plant. Mm. Now and I have already discussed it, but when I was doing the research for this, I saw the word coca and it sounded so familiar to me. I kept thinking coca coca what is that is it cocoa is it chocolate then I searched it and I realized that (laughs) this is a very popular tea in Peru and it was one of the first teas that I had because it helps with altitude sickness so if you go to Peru you probably will be offered this tea (laughs) at some point you can also chew on the leaves it's very popular anyways but the coca plant is used to make cocaine so (laughs) (laughs) anyways before it was used for cocaine it would be chewed by the indigenous populations to relieve hunger fatigue and enhance physical performance so it makes sense why they're giving me coca on my hikes why they gave me coca when i was looking a little run down so you had so Um, much energy i guess so i felt so much better later in the 1860s people People realized that coca was an effective anesthetic for surgeries. Coca was originally used for medicinal purposes, and there was a high demand around the world for medicinal cocaine. Now, an industry for coca-based goods starts to emerge in Peru, and exports to Europe and the USA increase. Cocaine then becomes the main source of economic growth in Peru, and by 1905, there are over 24 cocaine factories active and in operation. Keep in mind, this is all legal. These drugs are completely legal. It's part of the trade. And eventually, the U.S. actually becomes the largest market for coca products. And a fun fact is that in 1886, John Pemberton famously made Coca-Cola. Yeah. When I wrote this, Coca is literally in the name. In I was the like, name. Why did that not? It didn't occur to me. Dude, I like literally. Okay, so I knew that was like like one of those like random facts that people know that like oh Coca-Cola used to have cocaine in it. But then like when you you've told me the Coca plant story before, but then now the second time you're telling me when you said the word Coca, I'm like oh Coca-Cola. I guess because I never call it Coca-Cola, you just call it. Coke. It's also a street name, right? <laughs> it's also Coca-Cola. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why that didn't click for me. So yeah, John Pemberton makes Coca-Cola with the coca leaf extract as a herbal remedy to compete against the French's version of the same thing also made from coca plants called Vin Mariana. Hope I said that mm. right. Is the coca leaf addictive? Like, does it have addictive properties, or is it not until it's like processed? I didn't find it addictive. <laughs> that being said, if you drink a whole cup of coca tea, you will test positive on a cocaine drug test. Wow. I didn't feel the need to continue using it, but the leaf is illegal. Or it's illegal in Peru, or it's illegal. It's illegal in the to US. bring back in the U. You can't even bring back the leaves. I had no idea. Oh. I didn't realize. In Peru, it's legal to like consume. Right. So in Peru, cocaine is legal. Coke is legal. Cocaine is legal. Wait, is cocaine legal in Peru? Wait. <laughs> Hold on. Is cocaine legal in Peru? Because I mean, they still grow the plant. Yeah. Possessions of up to two grams of cocaine or up to five grams of coca paste are legal 
for personal use in Peru. Wow. So that is... I really did not know that. Yeah. How did I not know that? <laughs> uh, how did I not know that? I was there. <laughs> you were there. Yeah, it was... It's just so commonplace in Peru. It was... My host made me coca tea. It wasn't this, like, uh, brothel type under the table thing. And people were passing around leaves on hikes just to... Because if you chew on it, it's supposed to help with that. Wait, did I answer your question? You said... Is it legal? Oh, is it addictive? Is the coca plant addictive? Okay, using coca can also be unsafe, is the consensus from WebMD. Like I said, it is used for hunger and fatigue, physical performance, okay. asthma, altitude sickness. So in those cases, if you're using it, I don't want to encourage listeners, but yeah, it's, like, it's not medical advice. Right. This is not medical advice. We're not doctors, but using it in small doses like that are not going to be as addictive as cocaine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Someone also said what coca leaf when consumed in its natural form does not induce a physiological or psychological dependence, nor does abstinence okay. after long-term use produce symptoms. Okay. So maybe coca leaf isn't addictive. Okay. Okay. That's good. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> Phew. <laughs> they say, yes, it is. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So let's go into the 1900s. So first decade of the 1900s, eventually the USA notices that people are getting addicted and the delicate fabric of American society is being compromised. So they start to outlaw these drugs. By 1909, the USA outlawed the importation of opium and the use of opium through the Smoking Opium Exclusion Act. And now the trade is illegal in the USA. Also, side note, mm. I don't like the way they name that because you know that it has parallels to the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah, and, I was <laughs> just about to say. Yeah, and you and they also, of course, blame the Chinese for the importations because yeah. a lot of it was coming from Chinese immigrants. They were bringing in opium, but the Chinese were addicted because England brought it to them, so they didn't feel yeah. any moral remorse for also getting Americans addicted. Anyways... What goes around comes around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in 1914, the Harrison Narcotic Act outlawed cocaine in the United States. So now the coca trade with Peru is illegal. And in 1935, marijuana becomes more strictly regulated. So that's not illegal yet. But now at this point, okay. we have cocaine is legal, heroin's illegal, coca, opium. Okay. In addition to those laws, the U.S. also tries to lead an international drive to ban cocaine. So they want it illegal on a global scale. However, the League of Nations and producers of cocaine such as Peru, the Netherlands, and Japan resist the effort. So that's another fun fact is that both the Netherlands and Japan also grew their own versions of cocaine. Really? Yes. Wait, I had no idea. Drug laws in Japan are like extremely strict. So that is really, today at least, so that's really surprising that they had their own cocaine market. Legal cocaine market. I wonder why the U.S. tried so hard to make it illegal worldwide. Like maybe they were like, okay, it's not going to be legal here and we don't want anyone else to like profit off of it. That's probably why. <laughs> it could be. A lot of this is about money, right? This yeah. is why it's an ongoing issue. So I wouldn't be surprised that the U.S. didn't want other people to profit off of it. This mm -hmm. is all happening at the same time as the prohibition 
era in the United States. So they're outlawing alcohol. It's very savior-oriented where we need to Mm. outlaw all these sins and vices from society. But I do feel that there could have been monetary gain from that as well. Yeah, for sure. So because it's all outlawed, now all these drugs must be sold on the black market if you want to get those U.S. dollars. (laughs) Mexico is also conveniently located beside the USA. So as a result, we see the illegal production and trafficking network start to develop in Mexico by the early 1900s. Because, yeah, that's the best way to get to the U.S. Yeah, it makes sense. It's location, honestly. (laughs) It's like, where's the production coming from? Where's the location? I feel as if the countries involved, it's unavoidable for them to become involved. Yeah. Because geographically, you are in the way. Yeah, you're stuck (laughs) in the middle. So whether you like it or not, it's going to happen. So now we get into the Mexican trade routes evolving. So Europe originally produced much of the trafficked opium and because of the panama canal transporting the opium from the atlantic to the pacific was much Mm. easier the drugs would then go through nicaragua and enter mexican ports it was then passed up through the border towns of mexicali and tijuana into san francisco and los angeles so like we said mexico already had opium production but this started to increase after mexico prohibited the import of opium in 1920. However, despite the increase in production of the Mexican poppy, the farmers couldn't meet market demands, and so traffickers start to illegally import opium and morphine produced abroad. Oh, do you know, like, where those are being produced? I think, aren't there, like, a lot of, isn't there a lot of opium production, like, in the Middle East? Doesn't it, like, grow a lot there? Today, yes. Yeah, oh, today. During this time, uh, the majority of it was coming from Europe. So. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of crime being committed now in Mexico because the imports are illegal mm. and they have to get around that because there is still a market demand. So then the Mexican government also tries to ban marijuana in 1920, but production was still being measured in the tons by 1930. Oh, wow. Yeah, so tons. that outlaw did not work. Wow, wow, we. I know. And a lot of the emergent political class in the 1920s viewed trafficking as just a business opportunity. And so politicians in the northern states started to manage, allow, and regulate the trade with local power arrangements. This is in Mexico, I should clarify. Mm. Thus, a network of traffickers evolved from multiple countries, and they work closely with local political elites and law enforcement. Okay, yeah. I'm just thinking, like, once it gets that involved with like government and law enforcement that's hard to reverse how do you stop that right so lucrative that most people Mm. don't see a problem so many people believe that the direct involvement of local political elites played an important role in actually reducing conflict and violence over the drug trade at that time in mexico oh really yeah, and then eventually marijuana is introduced to Colombia before World War One from Panama, and Colombia also joins the drug trade, and by the 1940s, the Colombian government notices how much cultivation and consumption it took up, and they try to initiate an anti-drug campaign as well. Cuba also emerges as a transit point and destination for illicit narcotics in the early 1900s. So... Mm. As we can see, a lot of countries are starting to get pulled into the trade. Yeah. Just, like, the more countries that get involved, like, the more entrenched this, like, black market 
drug trade route become right and more difficult it gets to stamp it out because if you just stamp it out in one country another country is going to take over which we're really going to start to see so after world war ii we enter a new global context in the unstable political environment of post-war latin american politics the production and distribution of drugs becomes both more organized and more regional in scope as it continues to shift across latin america So this period is when we start to witness the massive expansion of drug trade-connected violence. Okay. The United Nations adopts a goal of eradicating the Andean coca bush in 1948. Due to the outside pressure, Peru criminalizes cocaine, but then a trafficking network emerges and connects Lima, Peru to Havana, Cuba, and New York City, as well as other North American urban drug scenes. Hmm. So they're trying. It's not working. Yeah. Side note, Time Magazine reported in April 1949 that a Cuban diplomat stationed in Peru was arrested while carrying nearly one kilogram of cocaine in a diplomatic pouch. Uh, a kilogram? Oh yeah, my one gosh. Kg. Oh no. That looks so bad. Can you imagine? I can believe it though. They're like, that's my diplomatic pouch. You can't yeah. look in there. <laughs> my diplomatic, right. diplomatic secrets. So then Bolivia also emerges as a key player in the development in the illegal cocaine complex after its 1952 revolution. I don't know anything about mm. the Bolivian revolution. They had a revolution though. And basically they overthrew the Bolivian government that was in place and then indigenous peasants regained access to large amounts of land leading to a surge in coca production. Hmm. And coca consumption in Bolivia is an accepted social convention practiced by the indigenous majority and other segments of Bolivian society. Hmm. So with the criminalization of the cocaine industry in Peru, Bolivia then steps up and at the same time, Cuba became perhaps the most consequential location for the development of cocaine as a pleasure drug. Havana was one of the first post-war global sin capitals, quote unquote. And by 1954, Havana actually had the most Cadillacs per capita of any city in the world as it was where American mobsters mingled with their counterparts from Mexico and Central and South America. For anyone who doesn't know, a Cadillac is a very expensive car. So just goes to highlight how much money was going into Cuba. Yeah. So through the 1960s and 1984, there is a further rise of Colombia as the dominant producer and trafficker while the Mexican government attempts to curb marijuana and opium production. Now, this period also witnesses a sharp spike in violence with the drug trade. Now, we'll go into the 1970s. So it's really, it's just growing and growing throughout this time. And in the late 1970s, this is where we start to see more organized gangs, I would say. Organized cartels. Okay. In the late 1970s, the Medellin cartel, founded by Pablo Escobar, began operating in the city of Medellin, Colombia. And they were an organized group of drug suppliers and and smugglers. So in 1975, the Colombian police seized 600 kilos of cocaine from a plane. Then, in retaliation, drug traffickers killed 40 people in one weekend <gasps> in what became known as the Medellin Massacre. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, and so then this event triggered years of violence that led to assassinations, kidnappings, and raids. Mm. And during the peak of its reign, the Medellin cartel brought in up to 60 million dollars a 
day in drug profits. What? That's crazy. No. That is the number. A day. That's the number I found. Jack. That's crazy. <laughs> that's literally insane. Like, I knew there was so much money in that, but $60 million a day. Yeah, that was a I can't point. even comprehend that. I'm also like, where did I get that number? That's crazy. Medellin. <laughs> I just want to double check it. <laughs> You're like, wait, did I, did I, <laughs> like, was it, like, thousand? Like, That's so much. That's, like, Rockefeller level, you know? That's, like, probably more, honestly. Yeah. Okay, meddling car day profits. Obviously, you can't really, they don't fill out taxes, so. No, that's true. Daily in profits. Wait, that's on, let me see, let me see. That was on Wikipedia. 420 million a week in revenue. <sighs> that's crazy. My thing is, once you make that, why don't you just stop? You're done. Like, yeah, you can retire. Just greed, like. You just work a day and you're done. Why do you want to keep working? <laughs> can you imagine you work one day and then you retire? Yeah, that's how I would. Oh, this is a whole cocaineonomics. <laughs> cocaineonomics. I like that. I don't know if I go through that, but yeah. I mean, it says 60 million daily. So we'll assume that's an accurate number, but that's insane. That's insane. Literally, when you said, like, you were going to be talking about illegal drug trafficking, I was like, when I think of that, it's, like, synonymous with Pablo Escobar. So I was, like, so surprised when, like, you, like, how far back it goes, you know? Like, I thought it was Pablo Escobar was, like, just the start. The one? Yeah. You know what? I never heard of Pablo Escobar. What did you hear about him? (gasps) Oh, I, okay, I'm trying to think what the first time I heard about him. I think it was, maybe it was in high school. Anyway, I watched a movie called The Two Escobars. It's a documentary. It's about Andre Escobar and Pablo Escobar. And so Pablo Escobar, the drug dealer. Andre Escobar, he was a Colombian soccer player. So he is murdered because he scored a goal against his own team during a soccer match. That's like the opening scene is he's murdered. Like it's not a spoiler. But it tells a story about like both of their lives because they're both in Colombia at the same time. It's like the two Escobars. But anyway, so I remember that. Like we learned about him in high school. And then also just from Narcos, like I never finished the show Narcos. My parents were like obsessed with it. So I would just like see it on the TV, but like that's how I know about him. Mostly just like, I don't know, like anecdotal facts and like weird stories like, oh, Pablo Escobar, but yeah. Wait, were the two Escobars related? Were they brothers? No. no. Okay. No, I don't think they were related. No, they were just both Colombian figures. When I was doing my research for this, people... Uh, it's just Reddit channels. <laughs> People in Reddit channels were saying that, oh yeah, Pablo Escobar, what was his downfall? That's a very heavily searched question yeah. is why did Pablo Escobar meet his downfall? Yeah. And then they were like, everybody knows about Pablo Escobar and the Medellin. And I'm like, I did not. This is my first time hearing about it. <laughs> so I don't know. I wasn't sure if it was just common knowledge to know about this. For me, at least he's kind of like Al Capone where it's like, oh, he's like just one of those prime people that like I heard about, but Ah, I didn't know too many details. Okay. That makes more sense. It's easier to see him as an Al Capone now, actually, now that you say that. Right. Where were we? Okay. So meanwhile, by the mid 1980s, the U.S. Mexican border becomes the main transport route for cocaine, marijuana, and other drugs into the United States. In 1982, the Panamanian general Manuel Noriega allowed drug lord Pablo Escobar to start shipping cocaine through Panama, connecting Colombian traffickers into Panama. Yo, wait, I talked about 
something to do with Noriega in one of our episodes in our why are we so obsessed with Latin America yeah but not about this well it's related (gasps) oh my gosh Nat did a great episode on the Monroe Doctrine everyone should check it out after this but that ties into it because okay for this episode it's about the Latin American drug trade but the U.S. is very much a part of the storyline that's why there's lots of facts in this episode about kind of where the U.S. was at that time or what they were doing Mm -hmm. around the same time vice president george hw bush creates a south florida drug task force to combat the trade in miami and a miami federal grand jury indicted medellin cartel's top leaders in 1984 a year later u.s officials find out that the medellin cartel had a hit list of american embassy members their families, journalists, and businessmen. Jeez, that's really horrifying. Yeah, it's always so scary. So the United States and the Colombian government then try to work together in tandem to take down Escobar and his cartel as a part of the war on drugs. I'm not going to go into the war on drugs. If you're listening outside of America or if you are from America and you haven't heard of it, the war on drugs was a big initiative that we had in the United States to combat drug use. Yeah. But that that's a whole nother episode because it's there's a lot that goes into that it started during the reagan administration right yeah it was like nancy reagan yeah that was her big thing didn't she start the dare program yeah just say no and dare well i don't know did you have this at your high school or your middle school but our lunch trays always said just say no to drugs on them did you have that (laughs) (laughs) not on our lunch trays no maybe it's because i'm from appalachia (laughs) There's an opioid epidemic. Oh, yeah, probably. But you had assemblies? Yeah, we had, like, so many assemblies about dare, just say no to drugs. Oh, wow. Yeah, so eventually Pablo Escobar is killed, and the Medellin cartel is brought down. But even as they took down the major cocaine kingpins in Colombia, and a kingpin is just, like, a a main leader, the trade never ceased, and another cartel known as the Cali Cartel emerges. Now, the Cali Cartel began operations in the early 90s, and they were based in southern Colombia. At their peak, it is speculated that they had control over about 80% of the cocaine supply to the United States. Wow. By mid-90s, the organization became a multi-billion dollar smuggling business, billion with a B. But then in 1995, top Cali cartel members were captured and arrested, and a year later, all of the Cali kingpins were behind bars. Mm. At this point, the bulk of the drug trade was then inherited by Mexican organizations after the fall of the Colombian cartels. Mm -hmm. As soon as you end it in one country, it just goes to another, you know? With these drug cartels, and I wonder if it's changed over time, but, like, is it a situation where it's like, oh, steal from the rich, give to the poor, like, they're helping the communities? Or is it, like, they're just bringing violence to this community and, like, people are forced into the drug trade, whether they like it or not? Like, did you do any research about that? Yeah, there are two sides to that. The people who are profiting off of the drug trade actually tend to be social elites in these countries. Their families have been involved in the drug trade for a while. And of course, now they're wealthy, so they're elites. However, the drug trade has also given opportunities to people who are not in that social class, such as farmers and labor workers, to make money. And it's very dangerous. Whether or not you agree with it, though, it does provide a way to make money. And it also 
allows you to make more money than you might had you done a traditional route to become a doctor, a laborer, you know. So there's two sides to that. It just depends. Yeah. Mexican families in the state of Sinaloa had a long history of trafficking marijuana and opium into the United States. But the formation of the modern cartel structure we see today did not begin until the Colombian kingpins had fallen. So it's fairly new, actually. The Sinaloa Federation formed in 1989 and became one of the largest and most well-known Mexican drug cartels. According to the U.S. Attorney General's office, the Sinaloa cartel imported and distributed almost 200 tons of cocaine and heroin between 1990 and 2008. Oh my goodness. How does that even... I don't know. Where do you store that? How do you move that? Yeah, like, how are you getting it through? That blows my mind. Just from a logistical level. Okay, well, fun fact. I was going to save it for the end, but this is an appropriate time. A lot of these drugs are coming in through designated U.S. checkpoints. Oh, so... So how do you get tons and tons of drugs through undetected at a designated U.S. border checkpoint? It's not undetected. That's what I think. Wow. Maybe it's it's too risque to say but it's not just snuck through a hidden mountain yeah that's crazy anyways so joaquin el chapo guzman led sinaloa beginning in 1989 and by 2003 the united states department of treasury considered el chapo as the most powerful drug trafficker in the world <gasps> Wow. I have a fun El Chapo Ooh. story. Oh, you can tell me. Yeah. Basically, okay, so when El Chapo, it's like spoiler alert, when El Chapo is finally arrested, they held him in a, a prison in downtown Chicago. And I was on a high school field trip and we happened to walk by. It's a big prison that's in Chicago. We walked outside the building. My photography teacher was like, oh, El Chapo's here right now. That's it. It's not an exciting story, but... I thought you were about to say you met him or something. No, I didn't meet El Chapo, but I was near him. Near him so. at the same time. <laughs> okay, that's cool. It's a fun story. Yes, El Chapo is eventually arrested. He escapes from prison several times. Then eventually he's recaptured by Mexican authorities in 2016. Yeah. Very recent. That's when I was near him. <laughs> In early 2017, he was extradited to the United States to face criminal charges. To Chicago! So that's the end of El Chapo. <laughs> we got the inside scoop from Nat here. Another Mexican cartel known as Gulf started in 1920s, but they didn't gain ground until the 1980s. So Gulf was the main rival of the Sinaloa in Mexico, and they were made up of former elite members of the Mexican military, also known as Los Zetas. Oh, wow. The Los Zetas were basically the hitman for the Gulf. So Los Zetas had a reputation for ruthless violence, oh, which geez. included, trigger warning, leaving body parts in public places and posting killings on the internet. <gasps> Oh my god. So eventually the Gulf and the Los Zetas split. When the two groups split in 2010, there was a bloody fallout that has been called the most violent period in the history of organized crime in Mexico. Mm. So the newer cartels continue to emerge in Mexico and the impact of the violence is still felt today. As a result of U.S. interference in the Colombian trade to the coast of Miami, Mexicans had picked up considerable influence in trafficking drugs across the expansive land border. Right, so the land 
at the drug trafficking corridors is becoming priceless and various cartels would start to fight for territory in a series of wars starting in 2006. Mm. These have resulted in at least 160,000 deaths and tens of thousands of more disappearances. Oh my god. So another critical turn in the conflict was with the 2006 election of Felipe Calderon to the Mexican presidency. He declared that the government would fight the drug cartels, but this decision sparked an escalation in violence that has developed into the more recent wars we've seen over the last decade and a half. Hmm. It's really unfortunate to hear because every time they try to take a step forward, a lot of people really do get hurt and killed, so. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize that this was like the most violent time period that we were in because like 2006, how do I, how do I phrase that? You know what I'm trying to say? Like, like growing up, I guess we've just been seeing the height of it. So I didn't realize that this was like the height and that it didn't always used to be this bad. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I think that now we're old enough to get it. But even mm. now, do you feel like you understand the seriousness of the drug trafficking in Latin America? No, I don't think so. Like, it's not something that I have like ever studied in depth or like that I really hear about that much. I don't know, like immigration is a really big topic that's debated in the US now, but I feel like we don't really talk about the roots of the drug trafficking issue in regards to mm-hmm. immigration. Right. So despite the efforts against it, violence continues to erupt around the drug trade and the entire hemisphere is facing a series of crises related to drugs. Mexican cartels still control most of the trade, but these cartels have fractured and splintered into more elusive, localized entities in response to conflicts amongst each other and the governments of the U.S. and Mexico. Okay. So it's a lot more like smaller cartels rather than one big one that's easy to take down. I see. Right. Before it was just mostly the Sinaloa and mm. then the competing Gulf also emerged eventually, but then now it's a lot of smaller almost startups <laughs> in the space. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it, but yeah. Is it not? Is it not a very successful startup? Yeah. I mean literally <laughs> Am I wrong? Are you going to tell me that I'm wrong? (laughs) Okay, now we're going to talk about the U.S. involvement, the CIA, and drug trafficking. Nice, okay. So over the years, journalists and writers have made claims that the CIA has been involved in various drug trafficking operations. One of the most notorious accusations involved the CIA's connection to the Nicaraguan Contra War during the president of Ronald Reagan, which is what Nat talked about in the... Why are we so obsessed with Latin America? Yeah. Are we talking about the Iran-Contra? This is exactly it. Yeah, the Iran-Contra. Because, so, basically, in 1986, the administration acknowledged that the Contras may have engaged in activity with drug traffickers, but insisted that the leaders of the rebels were Mm. not involved. But who really knows what happened? That was the big problem, is that the U.S gave military arms to the Contras in Nicaragua because they were fighting against communism, but also it's speculated that they were involved in drug trafficking. So in which case, if they were, we would have just been enabling violence in the drug trade. Yeah, we would, yeah. Yeah, check out that episode. (laughs) (laughs) We'll link it. Anyways, so drug trafficking in the United States is a significant concern and organizations in the Middle East including the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, have become major players in the production and shipment of illegal drugs. I did not know that. I didn't realize that they were 
involved in drug trafficking. Wait, who? Wait, what? The Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Oh! Did you know that? Oh. Within the Middle East, though, like, they're not catering to U.S. markets, are they? Who knows? It's the production and shipment of illegal drugs. Hmm. I knew that, but I didn't know. I don't know where, like, the drugs are going, I guess. Because that's how they get a lot of their financing. I believe. Oh, I, believe. I did not know that. Don't, don't call me. But. That makes sense, though. So Mexican and Colombian cartels remain problematic for the U.S. government, and a 2014 report revealed Americans spent about $100 billion a year over the previous decade on illicit drugs. Wow. So we're almost to the end. Government corruption. <laughs> the vast majority of profits go to cartels responsible for transporting the drugs across the U.S. border. However... The money is an incentive for everyone, from poor farmers to wealthy elite families, to become involved with trafficking cocaine through Central America and other drugs. And Central American gangs like MS-13 and Barrio 18 in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras have a limited role in trafficking drugs. So they're not as involved mm -hmm. as countries like Colombia or Mexico, but they can serve as the muscle for drug trafficking operations. However, the majority of the drug trade through Central America is run through well-connected elite families who have operatives throughout the insidiously corrupt governments. Oh my god. Right. So these wealthy elites are often tied to the former military regimes of these countries. For example, the Honduran president's brother was arrested in Miami on drug trafficking charges. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So cartels and gangs who traffic drugs have also embedded themselves in national, political, and economic structures across the region. We saw this with the mafia, organized crimes. Yeah. And so corruption and drug money is prevalent now in the Mexican federal government, police, and military unfortunately. So U.S. Customs and Border Patrol have actually also experienced serious problems with corruption as, like we said, 80% of the drugs imported into the United States happen through legal U.S. border checkpoints. That's wild. I didn't know that. I really didn't. I didn't know that either. So we have corruption too. And as it stands now, the drug trade and the violence that accompanies it remains one of the most serious national security threats to nations across the Western Hemisphere. And efforts to combat the drug trade have been failures, to say the least. Mm. The U.S. and Latin American governments have invested billions of dollars into combating the trade, but drug demand in the U.S. has only continued to increase, and we remain one of the largest importers of illegal drugs today, oh. and the violence continues to increase. Especially last year with the pandemic, there was a significant increase in drug violence and use with more than 17,000 people being murdered in the first half of 2020 in Mexico alone. Oh my god. That's a huge number. Jack, this is like horrifying. I can't even think of a solution. Like literally, it's so entrenched in all these different countries. And as we've learned from the past, even if you stop one cartel or stop trade in one country like it's just gonna pop up somewhere else so it's like really the only way to solve it is just to cut off demand but then how do you do that we're not just gonna like dare did it work <laughs> um yeah like just say no to drugs didn't work i'm like not an expert in this by any means at all but like a big argument to support the legalization of marijuana in america is that it will cut off the black market marijuana drug dealing scene and like this whole supply will be legalized and it'll be controlled in a safer i wonder okay sorry now i'm just like ranting and like talking as i 
think, but... Um, no, you're good. Like, I wonder now that like a lot of states have gone ahead and legalized marijuana. You said that there was a huge increase during the pandemic, so I guess there hasn't been a significant decrease. Do you know, like, what it, like which drugs... Is it mostly cocaine, heroin, mm, marijuana? No, I don't know specifically what drug is the most yeah imported to the u.s however to go back to some of your earlier points or your earlier (laughs) yeah to the earlier (laughs) rant section an interesting country to look into would be portugal because portugal actually everything is legal and i didn't look into it so i don't know how that's working for them Mm. but the flip side to that argument is if we make everything legal it makes access to the drugs a lot easier and more widespread which is of another concern so i'm not sure wow yeah and again just to our listeners like i am not supporting one side or another like i'm not trying to make an argument right now i'm just genuinely curious i don't know what the options are and obviously there are so many people trying to figure this out but it's just a really complex issue this episode has left me with like so much to think about I really learned so much. I'm glad. I, I really liked it too because I really don't... One of my big pet peeves is when people say... Especially with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I heard a lot of people say, why don't they just stop fighting? It's so stupid. You have to understand these issues are very complex. Yeah. Each side has their reasons for doing it. If it was that simple as the world needs more love, let's just be <laughs> kinder, then just oh, be sure friends. we wouldn't have any problems then. But the thing is the conflicts yeah. are so complex. It's not as easy as the government needs to step it up. People's lives are at stake. The government has tried to step it up, you know? Yeah. Just say no. Right? Sorry, <laughs> Nancy Reagan. The the lunch right. trays were not a hit. Like, it didn't work. Yeah. So, it didn't work. Man. Yeah. But it is, it's eye-opening, and hopefully mm. we can all come from a space of deeper understanding on how challenging this conflict yeah. really is. And then, to close, yeah. though, I mean, I mentioned it, but Nat, do you have your guess for what the answer of... Who is the largest importer of illegal drugs? Which country? I googled it before, so... But, okay, if I had not googled it before, I guess I would have thought the U.S. is up there. I really can't think of any other country that... Yeah, I remember I saw this and the choices were the Netherlands, maybe India, the United States, and somewhere else. I guess the Netherlands? I don't know why. But, um, yeah, yeah, no, the answer is the United States. So there you go. If you see that on your foreign service exam, you know, we are the largest importer. Dang. That's like surprising me too, just like based on population. My guess, I guess would have been like China or India, just because of the pure amount of people, but not quite. Thank you, Jack. And thank you to everyone for listening to another episode. We will see you guys next week. Yeah. (laughs) Bye. This has been an episode of How Did We Not Know That? If you liked it, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also follow us on all social media at HDWNKT and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also, check out our website at HDWNKT.com to find all of our show notes and study guides for each episode. You can help us improve the quality of the podcast by becoming a history hero through our Patreon. Thank you for listening and see you guys next week.